You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Man, if you have your Bibles, if you would go with me to uh, Isaiah 6.1. If you're visiting this morning, I hope that you felt uh, immediately at home like I did. I drove up on campus um, and um, immediately met just gracious people who were so hospitable. And uh, Dave uh, Morley was my host. And then had really gotten... Uh, just such a joy out of getting to know uh, Pastor Scott this morning and, um, and just, again, the hospitality of this church, the graciousness of this church. And then after the first service, meeting so many church members has been such a gift. And so if you're visiting, I, I think you've found a great safe place to belong and, and to be a part um, of. Uh, and uh, we're gonna look at God's word this morning together. And um, it literally is a passage of scripture that has in it uh, the word that is a part of the series, this idea of being sent, this idea of a great commission. As a matter of fact, uh, the passages that we're gonna look at this morning uh, are considered the Old Testament Great Commission. A guy named Timothy Keller, who who was a pastor who just passed away this year uh, from New York, uh, says about this passage, this particular uh, thing. He says, in in this passage, uh, you see uh, in these verses a God quake a God quake that is results to a self quake that eventually results to an earthquake and the earthquake being the sending of a man. And so as we look at these passages, I just want you to know that we're getting to read out of the journal of a man who about 20 years post the time that it happened is remembering the sent moment of his own life. And so just out of respect for God's word, if we can, um, would you mind if we stand together, if you're physically able? I know not everyone might be able to physically stand with us this morning, and that's totally fine, but um, let's read uh, God's word together. <clears throat> in the year that King Uzziah died, it was in that year that I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now above him were these seraphims, each with six wings. And with two wings, these seraphims, they they covered their face. And with two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. Let me just stop, look at me for just a second and just say, this isn't just a historical picture of what they were doing. This is a current picture of what they are doing. And so this isn't just Isaiah thousands of years ago getting a glimpse of angels, specific angels, six-winged angels, seraphims, calling out what they were, but calling out right now what is happening currently at this very moment in the vicinity of God. And they were calling out to one another, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the whole earth is full of his glory. While the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds began to shake and the temple becomes filled with smoke and the Shakespeare of the Bible, y'all, the most profound orator of language of his generation is what they called him, simply musters up, whoa, whoa. Woe to me, I cried, I 
am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth, and he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sins atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me, whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And Isaiah simply says this, hear my Lord, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may have a seat. And so if you're reading this and you grew up with it and somebody flannel grafted for you when you were in VBS growing up, you know the text. But if this is the first time, let me give you a little context for the text. This is basically you and I looking back at a moment in the life of a prophet where something traumatic happens to him. And post that moment, he's left never the same. This is that morning moment where there is an ascending before there is ascending. This is that moment where there is an event that happens internally to him that ends up having an external result. This is that moment where he looks back and as he's looking back, it's interesting that he begins in his journal to say, I remember exactly when it was. It was in the year that King Uzziah died. That's when I saw the Lord. If you're taking notes, I think one big application of that is that Isaiah looks back and he can tell as he looks back that the greatest moment of his life happened in a season when he was in the valley of the shadow of death. Some of us feel like the great moments of our lives, the, the great highlight moments of our spiritual life have to be in those moments where we got the promotion finally that we've been waiting for, or finally the cancer went away, and certainly God can speak through triumph, but this wasn't one of those, y'all. This was one of those moments where God spoke the loudest to him in a moment, not of triumph, but tragedy. Isaiah loved Uzziah. Uzziah the king was a popular king. For 52 years he had reigned. And honestly, for 52 years he'd had a great reign. He was a popular king. This wasn't like our political landscape is today where like half the country is divided on one side and the other half is on the other side. If you, he, if you love Trump, half the people that, 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 that you go around meeting probably don't love Trump. If you love Biden, half the people you go around meeting probably don't love Biden. No, no, no. Uzziah was a popular king. He was a loved king. He had brought peace. He had brought prosperity. He was collectively, majority-wise, very, very much a popular leader by the people who he had led. It wasn't like he started this thing called Uzziah Care, and half the people were like, why are we paying for everybody else? No, no, no. Everybody loved Uzziah. And to Isaiah, Uzziah wasn't just a popular king. He was a personal friend that he served along. And then his friend dies, and then his king dies, and the whole country is in a prolonged season of uncertainty. By the way, sometimes something happens, as you can tell, you know, like in your own life, and it's just immediate trauma, and it has a compounded effect, but sometimes it's a prolonged season of uncertainty. And it also has a compounded effect. And Isaiah had had both of those. And he's saying it was in that year that King Uzziah died. That's when I saw God. 
application, you might right now be in a moment when the cancer is back. You might be right now in a moment when your child is prodigal. You might right now be in a moment where you just got handed the uncertainty that, look, we're going to let a few people go and you might be one of them. So you don't know where your next job is going to come from. And in this moment, God hasn't left you, beloved. Sometimes these are the moments when God shouts the loudest. When God holds us the closest. And Isaiah looks back and he says it was in the year King Uzziah died. That's when I saw the Lord. And you know he had an accurate vision of God because his accurate vision of God was a high vision of God and a low vision of himself. Now what I'm saying that, what I mean by that is that a lot of times people will say they saw God, but really God was the one that was lowered in their vision of God and they were the one who was heightened. I remember I was at Ridgecrest, since we're in the, the Carolinas, you know, uh, I'll just bring up a, a, a Carolina illustration for you, but I was at this camp, and, and the first day that we were at the camp, I, I walked off stage after I got done speaking, and this young lady walked up to me, and she goes, I'm mad at you, and I said, I'm sorry, what did I do? And she goes, tonight when you were preaching, you told me to break up with my boyfriend, and I never said the words break up with your boyfriend, but I've learned through years of being in ministry that when somebody says that, I'm like, so, not what, you know, I was like, so, and she says, well, you know, I just felt like tonight when you were talking that God, uh, you know, or just through you and what you had to say that I was told to break up with my boyfriend. And she said, you know, I just want you to know that I, I'm, a, I just, I'm, I'm about to go and text him that it's over. And I said, well, can you tell me a little bit more? And she told me how she's been dating this guy who's really popular in her high school. He's not a Christian. She is a Christian. And during the sermon, God had told her, what are you doing, right? Dating a non-believer, you're unequally yoked. And so she felt like the Holy Spirit has spoken to her to break up with her boyfriend. And so she walked out and she just, in a text, broke up with her boyfriend. Well, that was on the first night of camp. The second day I was coming in and I saw her. She was in the corner under this tree and she was just crying. I walked over and she goes, it's too soon, I can't talk to you. I said, okay, and so I kept walking by her. And the next day, the next day I was at, at, at rec with some of the students like hanging out and I looked over and she wasn't hanging out at rec. She was kind of by herself and all week it was just obvious she was struggling. And the last day of camp, Pastor Scott, she walks up to me and she was all excited and smiling and I thought, why? This is amazing. God's like finally like ministered to her. She's gotten over the hump and she walked up and she goes, and tonight during the worship song, it was amazing. God just told me to get back with him. So I walked right out and I texted him, we're getting back together. And we made up and I came right back in. And she goes, what do you think? Isn't that amazing? I can be a missionary. He told me when I dumped him, if this is Christianity, I want to have nothing to do. And then I restored that witness with one text to make up with them. And I, and I looked at her and I said, I just got to tell you, I, I love you. And I'm so proud of you that there's pain in the offering and that there's been a week of struggle. But I don't think God forever and ever has had a standard. And, and all of a sudden, on a, on a camp outing with you, decided to bend his own theology into a pretzel just to make sure that you're okay. And she goes, what do you mean? I said, I don't think God is telling you to get back with him. She goes, how do you know? I said, because you're a believer. He's not a believer. He's not silent about that. And she goes, that's not my God. And look at me. You know you're saying, I heard from God when your God is the one who's high and lifted up. And you're the one who's lowered. Not, I put God down and I sit on the throne. See, everybody has a throne. The question is, who sits on your throne? You? 
Everybody has a God. The question is, who is your God? You? If you're going to treat God like he's the one who's Lord, he's the one who's doing everything for you, he's the one who's basically your personal assistant, not your God. If you're going to treat God like a waiter, well, you're telling God what to do, and God's not the one really telling you what to do. By the way, if you're going to treat God like a waiter, at least start tithing 15%. That's what a waiter gets at your local Applebee's. <laughs> And if you're going to treat God like he's the one who is lowered and you're the one who's heightened, you're the one making the assignments, you're the one making sure that God, whoever your definition of God is, can tend to to cater to whatever your lifestyle needs to be for your gain and not his glory, then you know you haven't had an accurate picture of God. And Isaiah has an accurate picture of God because he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and he was seated on a throne, and everything about God was high. And then these these angels were around God, and as they were around God, they were ascribing the one preeminent thing about God that is true about God over every other attribute of God, his holiness. And they were saying it and ascribing it over and 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 over again. See, there's a lot of stuff that's true about God. Is God love? Is God merciful? Is God patient? But it's also true that it's God jealous? Is God wrathful? But what's true about every attribute of God, and it's everything that we just said and so much more, is that every single thing about God that we just mentioned and so much more is scattered and covered and smothered in his holiness. God is a loving God, but it's a holy love. God is a patient God, but it's a holy patience. God is a wrathful God, but it's a holy wrath. God is a jealous God, but it's a holy jealousy. And Isaiah has this encounter with God. And everything about the God that he sees is a God who isn't just holy, which means set apart. Who isn't just holy, which means perfect, right? Is that God is set apart, set apart, set apart. Unusual, unusual, unusual. Rare, rare, rare. This is the only time in scripture where we see the Hebrewic, you know, exercise a repetition to show power said about God in the third power. It never says in scripture that God is mercy, 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 or that God is jealous, 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 or God is patient, patient, patient. But right here it says God isn't just holy. He's holy, holy. He isn't just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah has this encounter with God, and as he has this encounter with God, his response in realizing God is holy, 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 is how he is unholy, unholy, unholy without him. You know you've had an encounter with God when in an encounter with God, it brings you to a reality, a wake-up call of who you are and your need for him. And Isaiah's response is simply this, woe to me. I am ruined. If you're visiting here this morning, I hope that you've sensed the hospitality that this church offers. It's unusual. But also, if you're visiting here this morning, you've picked a great morning because your guest speaker today has come here to say God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. God wants to encounter you just like God encountered Isaiah. And here, here's, the, here's the play out on that. You're visiting here this morning? God loves you and wants to ruin your life. <laughs> 
I know it doesn't sound very user-friendly. It doesn't do good on a T-shirt. It's certainly going to be on a billboard. Hey, come visit us. We got a six-week series called Ruined or whatever about your life. I know it doesn't sound very marketable, but that's the reality of it. When Isaiah meets God and he has a vision of God, it ruins him. It brings him to the end of himself. As a matter of fact, it's not just with Isaiah. Every time God and man collide in Scripture, man comes to the end of himself. Whether it's Paul on the Damascus Road, whether it's the woman at the well, whether it's Exodus experience where Moses walks off the mountain, man and God meet, and man never is the same. That's why Paul says about his encounter with God, Behold, anyone who is in Christ, the old has passed away. Say, dead. I know I'm in the South still because I say, say dead, y'all go dead. Y'all put like butter on it, say dead. Yes, anytime God and man collide, man is dead. (laughs) And so if you're taking notes, I think point number one is a really simple one, right? Encounters with God mark us forever especially our salvation moment. This is certainly this, this vision where there's an altar and a searing and a cleansing and certainly a, a picture of the gospel, right? And the beauty of that is that if you've ever had an Isaiah 6-1 moment in your life, it has marked you forever. When I was 18 and two months old, I remember the night that I became a Christian and I've never gotten over it. God didn't change my behavior that night. God ended me that night. God ruined me that night. God brought me to the end. As a matter of fact, if you have a different translation of the Bible, that passage doesn't just say, woe to me, I am ruined. Other translations say, woe to me, I am wrecked. Woe to me, I am at the end of myself. Woe to me, I am destroyed. Woe to me, here's the closest one to the original language. Woe to me, I am funeralized. And I remember when I was 18 and two months old, God funeralized me the night that I became a Christian. Honestly, God ruined my life the night that I became a Christian. I was headed to hell, and God ruined that destiny and sent me to heaven. It's a good ruin. I was inconsistent in everything about me, and God created in me a new me, and all of a sudden became more consistent. I was was a little me monster. I was sitting on the throne of my heart, and God said, excuse me, that's my seat. So God didn't ruin me as in he destroyed me. He ruined in me and that he, he created me a whole new me. I was, I was headed to destruction and all of a sudden he brought salvation. That's a good ruin. That's where I was going and he ruined not just my plans but everything. Has that ever happened to you? I remember the night I was 18 and two months old. I'd been going to this church. I'd gone eight weeks in a row. These, ki- these kids had seen me um, um, uh, you know, in, uh, in this youth group, and they decided that uh, I was the, the 1040 window come to town. They didn't even need a passport. And they would come to my house every Monday night. For eight Monday nights in a row, people, they called it visitation. I called it harassment. They just would come to my house. Eight Monday nights in a row, we're like, hi, the Southern Baptists are coming. The Southern Baptists are, and they would come to my house, and they would sit there, and they would share the gospel, share the gospel, share the gospel, and, and then they would, on Wednesdays, drive to my house and, 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 and sit there in front of my house until I would come out and get in the car and go with them to church. They would drag me to church. On Sundays, they would drag me to church, and one day, eight weeks into this, like, weird, like, relationship where they would just go after me about the gospel, eight weeks in, one night. I was sitting at their church, and this preacher was preaching, and he wasn't cool like Pastor Scott, you know, wearing, like, Bible clothes or whatever. Like, he, this guy was old school, King James only, had, had, like, sweat 
it's coming out of places that don't even have glands. It was just weird, all right? And so, and I remember he preached this, this guy. This guy was sitting there, and, he, and I was sitting there, and on a Sunday night, eight weeks into visiting their church, this guy preached this message, and he gave an invitation. And um, I'm telling you, it, it just scared me. It felt like somebody had handed this man a sticky note with all my information, and they hadn't. He was just being honest from Scripture. And he gave this invitation, and all these people came forward. And, and as they were coming forward, I just remember feeling like this stuff is starting to get to me. And eight weeks in, I decided I'm not coming back again. This is it. I'm not letting them in my house tomorrow night on visitation. I'm not coming back on Wednesday. They're not. So I, I hit the aisle. I went the other way. I got in my car. I went home. I was done with it. And when I walked in the house, it was like God's presence was thicker in my house. Because he's not contained in buildings with steeples, Right? And I walked in the house, and there was a stack of Bibles, because all these Christians, every time they'd come over for visitation, would bring me a Bible. Half of them had other people's names on it. They were like, we got this at Lost and Found. Don't worry. They won't care. And they kept bringing me Bibles. And, and I remember that night, that night at my house, that night, I, I just finally gave my life to Christ. And that night, I was 18 and two months old. That night, after church, that night, at about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning, God ruined the old David Nasser. That's why, that's why scripture says, if any man is in Christ, the old has passed away. Dead. For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the apostle Paul says. And the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so anytime man and God Meet man comes to the end of himself. And Isaiah says it was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord and it affected him and he never got over it. And then after God does this, this, this searing in his life and this cleansing in his life, then God looks at him and he says, but look at all these other people. And by the way, he had seen the other people, but he had not seen them through the lens of having been redeemed himself. Matter of fact, that word woe is an interesting one. When he says woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's not the first time that he's woeing. Matter of fact, that word woe means judgment. And seven other times that word woe has come out of him in that same book. But every other time it has been woe to them, and woe to them, and woe to them, and woe to them. And every other time he's been passing out judgment until he has an encounter with God. And he's no longer comparing himself so that he can feel better about himself. He's no longer saying woe to them. He says woe to me. And then he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so God gives him an adjustment, a realignment of who he is. But then he sees through the lens of salvation. Not the spirit of superiority, but empathy, burden. And he sees those around him who have yet to be seared by the good news of the gospel. And God says, who do I send to them? And his response is simply what? Send me. Send me. Not like, send me, I'm awesome. Not like, send me, because I'm amazing, but like, send me, I'm qualified. Why? Because what they need is exactly what I needed and I can testify. I'm not any better. I'm just changed by the power of the gospel. So you know you've been wrecked by the gospel when you become a wrecking ball for the gospel. 
you know that you have been ruined by the gospel when you see others that are ruining their lives on their own and saying God would like to ruin that and create in you a whole new you. That's the power of the gospel. I remember I was at a camp a couple years ago, and um, when I got to the camp, I'd been warned about this one young man who was going to be at camp. The youth pastor had warned me. He said, David, this guy's going to be at camp, and when you get there, he's going to sit in the front row, but he's going to try to be the biggest distraction he can possibly be at camp. And he had warned me. He said, David, like, you got to leave him alone. you got to like, stay away from this young man and, and, uh, because he's just going to be trouble, and his dad is like a big-time leader at our church, and, a, and their family like tithes, like sink like like the biggest tithe check at our church and so it's like his family is kind of legend but this young man completely has no interest but he's forced always to come to camp and and he told me he said David when you get there like every year everybody tries to reach out to him but they basically pull back a knob like you got to leave this guy alone and so I get to camp and sure enough he's sitting in the front row and and I mean and I've just decided like I don't know who they've had for a camp pastor before but I'm, I'm getting this young man, all right? And this is his senior year. And so every illustration I'm preaching, I'm trying to land the plane on his runway. I'm like, some of you tonight might need Jesus. Like, I'm doing everything. <laughs> but like putting a lighter basically under his chin to go, it's hot in hell, baby. Come on home. I didn't do that, but you know what I'm saying. Anyway, so, so we get to the first day of camp, nothing. Second day of camp, nothing. Third day of camp, nothing. We get to the last day of camp, like Thursday morning, last day of camp. And after the first morning session, everybody's leaving, and I had this idea. I got up real quick, and, and I grabbed the microphone, and I said, hey, 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 um, can I get all the adult counselors just to come forward for just a minute on your way out? It'll just be one minute. And so everybody left, and all the adult counselors came up, about 60, 70 adult counselors, and I said, hey, um, um, all of us know from what we've been hearing from this one young man who always sits in the front row, that this is his senior year. This is the last day he's ever going to be forced to come to camp again. I said, I've been trying to preach my heart out to him. I'm getting nothing. All right. Does anybody have any idea, any insight? And any, any, like, what can we do? This is our last night that we're ever going to have a session with him. And this one lady goes, well, we know where he always sits down. Why don't we like take like 15 minute intervals and sign up between now and tonight and pray over his seat and ask God just to land on him tonight. And so sure enough, they got out a piece of paper and started signing up for 15 minute intervals. This other lady was like, why don't we anoint the seat with oil? And like the only oil we had at this Southern Baptist camp was some like Mazzola for the popcorn machine. But you know, we got it out, you know. And so like for five, six hours that's happening, the young man comes, it's the last night of camp, Thursday night, right? He's all fired up, like to be a distraction. That's what he was wanting to be. He comes and he sits down and I get up there and I preach and then we give this moment of invitation where people could respond to the gospel and during the invitation, he gets up, like he's gonna, he's gonna like come forward. He gets up, he takes one step forward, and then he flicks me the bird <laughs> and comes to the middle and starts skipping out of the room as fast and as loud as he possibly can to be a distraction. And the youth pastor who was in the back of the room kind of sticks his head in the aisle so I can see him, and he kind of looks at me like, I try to warn you, bro. And he was right. I know God does it. I know he's sovereign. I know it's his timing. But I just remember just being brokenhearted. You ever have someone who doesn't know the Lord that, that you know God's the one who's going to have to do it, but you just want to see them come home? And I was just defeated about it. And so then the next morning, uh, Friday morning, they took me to the airport. I flew home. And all weekend I was just kind of down about this young man, thinking about him. And I go to work on Monday, and there's like five messages from the youth pastor from the week before trying to get a hold of me. 
So I call him back, and he goes, bro, where you been, man? I go, man, we don't, we don't answer the phone during the, during the weekend. And uh, he goes, man, I, I knew you'd want to know as soon as possible. I got to tell you what happened. He goes, David, we flew you home the next day on Friday morning. But what you didn't know was, like, there's a four, four-and-a-half-hour bus ride for us with the students, you know, to get back to, to our church. And so he said, man, that next morning, like, people are, like, loading up on the buses. And he said, and you got to understand, nobody wants to be stuck sitting by this young man for four hours because he's so mean to everybody. So as he's getting on buses, people are like, seat saved, seat saved. He said, except there's this one kid on the last bus who has decided, camp ain't over yet, baby. I got four more hours. <laughs> and he said, and this guy gets on this bus, and he's like, hey, man, you can come sit with me if you want to. And he has no idea when he sits down that it's lock and load. <laughs> he said, man, for like the next three and a half, four hours, this guy, every second he gets, he's just trying to talk to this guy about God. He's like, look, I need to tell you that God loves you. I need to tell you that, that God has a plan for you. He said, I mean, he is just relentlessly trying to just talk this guy into hearing the gospel. And he said, in about three and a half hours into this bus ride, we're like a half hour, 20 minutes outside of getting to the church, we're almost home. He said, the guy who's just been listening for three and a half hours just blows a gasket. He just looks at him and he goes, leave me alone. And the other guy looks at him and he goes, I'll leave you alone if you'll just listen to me for just a few minutes. And the guy goes, dude, you've been talking for three and a half hours. And he goes, yeah, 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 you've been, you've been hearing me, but you haven't been listening. He goes, will you just listen to me for five minutes? And he said, and all of a sudden this guy looks at him and he goes, okay, if it'll get you off my back, you've got my attention. Go, five minutes. By the way, can you imagine if you've been sitting in front of these people and you finally hear this guy go, I got five minutes, go. You know what you're doing, you're praying, right? But you're not just praying, you're probably tapping the people in front of you that are sitting on the bus in the row in front of you going, hey, be praying. And they're probably tapping the people in front of them, go be praying. They're probably tapping the people, they're probably tapping the bus driver who's probably getting on the walkie-talkie with you. Breaker one nine, y'all need to be, they got caravans. Of bus. All right, so they're all praying. And this guy like looks at him and he goes, man, thanks for giving me five minutes. I just wanna tell you, you keep looking at Christians who keep letting you down. You keep looking at inconsistencies in your parents' marriage, inconsistencies in the people that are, that are saying one thing and singing one thing but living another. Quit looking at Christians. Start looking at Christ. Jesus loves you. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinner's death. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. We're not interested in cleaning up your act. We're interested in saving your heart. Jesus died on the cross for you. And I mean, when he gets done sharing the gospel with this guy, that God so loves him that he gave his one and only son that if he believes in him, he will not perish but have eternal life he said the young man looks at his friend who's sharing the gospel and he goes how come no one's ever told me this to which when I heard this I thought that's what I did every night <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that no one can witness to an 11th grader more effectively than another 11th grader and so then all of a sudden this guy looks at him and he goes man I want to give my life to Jesus so the youth pastor tells me he goes bro the guy as we're pulling the buses into the parking lot gives his life to Christ. And he tells me this, and I'm like, that's amazing. He goes, I got to tell you what happened next. He goes, bro, that was on Friday afternoon. On Saturday, the guy that led him to the Lord and the guy that became a Christian, they instantly bond, and they're just hanging out, and they decide to go see a movie together. You ever go to the movies in the summer when it's packed out on a Saturday night? Well, they walk in, it's a packed out theater, two brand, I mean, two, two brand new friends, and they, they sit down, and they've got the popcorn, they've got the, the Coke, and, and they're watching the movie previews, and the youth pastor said, David, during about the third movie preview, 
the film projector breaks down. There's like a, some kind of a mechanical or the bulb gets hot or whatever and melts the film. And he said, and as soon as it breaks down, he goes, woo, woo, woo. There's like an issue. He goes, this guy that's been a Christian for one day looks at his friend and goes, hey, man, why do you think God just broke this projector? Do you think he's trying to tell us something? You ever meet people like that? Every little thing that happens, they feel like God's trying to tell them something. <laughs> They'll be like driving down the road and run out of gas, and they're like, God's trying to tell us. Yeah, he's, he's trying to tell us to get gas. That's what he, and it, sorry. Anyway, so this guy, this guy just became a Christian, so he's like, hey, man, what, why do you think God just broke this projector? You think he's trying to tell us something? And this other guy who's been a Christian for a long time goes, uh, what do you think he's trying to tell us? He goes, I don't know, dude. You're like the professional Christian. I'm like the baby one. Maybe since God knows everything, he knows everything, right? He goes, yes, God knows everything. He goes, since God knows everything and he's everywhere, uh, he's everywhere, right? Yeah, he's everywhere. Okay, so maybe God knows we're in here and maybe he broke this projector to give you and I an opportunity to witness to everybody in this theater. And this other guy who's been a Christian for a long time looks at his buddy and goes, look, dude, like you said, I know the signs. And this is definitely not the witness to the theater. Just chill out, all right? Just chill out. And as he's saying that to him, the projector starts back up again. So this guy who's been a Christian one day looks at his friend and goes, I'm so glad you stopped me from embarrassing myself. If God wanted us to witness to everybody, he'd have kept the projector broken longer. And as he's saying that, the projector breaks again for the second time. <laughs> So this guy who's been a Christian for one day just stands up, starts walking out and starts walking down the aisle, walks right to the front and stands right in the front and he goes, oh, excuse me, excuse me, I want to take these few minutes while they're fixing the projector back there to say just yesterday I became this thing called a Christian. It has completely made me different. And I just want you to know that if you've never become a Christian, you ought to try it. I'm just telling you, it's the best 24 hours of my life. My buddy back there led me to the Lord, stand up, stand up. His buddy's like... How you guys doing? Sits back down. And this guy goes, after this movie's over, I just want you to know that my friend will be standing there by the popcorn machine, all right, by, by the concessions, and he'd love to talk to you and give you what he gave me on a bus 26 hours ago. And as he's telling me this, I'm thinking, wow, the day before, this guy was avoiding the gospel like immigration. But you know what I'm saying. All right, that's just, but, but the day before, this guy didn't want to have anything to do with the gospel. And then what happens? He has an encounter with God. And the next thing you know, it's too good to keep to himself. He is wrecked by the gospel. He becomes a wrecking ball for the gospel. Does that make sense? God sends him the gospel, so then he gets sent for the gospel. Because any time God does a work in us, Anytime God does a work in us, that work is exemplified through us. And you don't have to graduate into your faith to get there. If you've been deeply impacted by the gospel, then you testify about it to anyone because you have the cure they need, beloved. Do you believe that? It's not a chore. It's not a, this is what I got to do the Great Commission, is this is what I get to do. Can I just read you one sentence and then I just want to close in prayer. David Platt says this. He says, a high view of God leads to a humble view of man resulting in an urgent view of mission. An urgent view of mission. Can I get you just wherever you are just to bow your heads with me for just a second? And can I ask you, do you know anyone 
maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a coworker, maybe a classmate. Do you know of someone sitting here today, right now, who is not in this room with you, who is yet to be impacted by the power of the gospel, who's yet to have not just a high view of God, but a low view of them, but not just a high view of God and a low view of them, but a moment at the altar where they bring their life. Have you ever come to a place where you have been able to see that person come to know the Lord? Could it be that today as you're sitting here, you're thinking about the reality that God is calling you, sending you to them? And this isn't a burden of, this is what I have to do, or a chore where like Christians should be witnesses and, and, and this just feels like guilt to go out and share the gospel. No, it's, it's, is it truly the greatest thing that's ever happened to you? Then why not declare it? The one thing I've learned about these three cities that have been huddled together Whenever I fly to RDU, you know, and I'm walking around your airport, the one thing that I've noticed is that you don't have to wonder if somebody is a Duke fan or a North Carolina fan. You don't have to wonder because they're not, they're not ashamed to associate themselves with the team that, that they stand for, the team that they bleed for. And the truth is that we've been given the gift of the gospel and the way that we honor that gift is that we don't hoard it and and so maybe there's no burden to share the gospel with others and I would ask you maybe have you ever received it yourself not have you had an encounter with God where God cleaned up your behavior you had an encounter with church where you got churchianity but have you ever come to the end of yourself where, where you saw you have an in the year King Uzziah died moment you have a there was a moment in my life when God and I collided I there was a moment in my life whether it was a my godly grandmother shared the gospel with me my it was a youth camp as in like there was an hour I first believed where there was the death of you and a whole new you was born again. Can I just tell you that one evidence of that is that you see others. You see others and you realize, and here's point number two, that the gospel isn't just a work that leaves you marked forever, but it's a work that leaves you marked for others. That there would be a holy burden in your life for those who don't know him. And so Jesus, we thank you for that. And so maybe today, as you're sitting here, you're thinking about that next door neighbor who moved into your neighborhood recently. Or that coworker that um, frankly, honestly annoys you, but because of the fact that they don't know the Lord, they seem to be doing a perfect job on their own of ruining their life. But now you see them through the lens of the gospel and you're saying, God, use me, send me. This is where God enlists a group of people who say, I want to. Everything about this church is, is it's not a country club that caters to those who already known him, but a sending arm to represent to those who don't. And so Lord, we thank you for that. God, I pray that today this would be more than just um, 
a lesson in what happened to Isaiah, but make us Isaiahs. Help us, God, to um, be sent. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to trust you and say, um, Lord, use me. Not because I'm awesome, but because you're awesome. Let me testify, God, to the power of the gospel. We pray this um, in your name, Jesus. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.